This is Art Matters. I'm Theron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's art collections. It's the only place to browse through paintings, works on paper, and sculpture from collections stretching from the shores of Cornwall to the Scottish Highlands. Join us at artuk.org. When it comes to tracking beauty trends throughout history, looks are always more than they seem. By examining the clothing, hairstyles, and makeup of sitters, we can gain deeper insight into the politics behind the beauty and the trends of a given era. Art is a really good way of fossilizing the moment. And I think we talk about the sociology of artwork as they were created, the context in which they were made. But I think in a very rapidly changing world, they are the contemporary, they are the moments captured that a year, two years later were already out of date. That's John Slay, freelance arts educator and learning curator. Within five years, within 10 years, within a generation, a number of these portraits that had been created of these very wealthy aristocratic members of society and history are already passe, they're already gone. And I think they're a really interesting staging post on who we were, but more importantly, how we can reflect on who we are now. In 2018, Gucci launched an Instagram account with portraits that served as inspiration for their Gucci beauty campaign. Selections included a diverse set of paintings, including Egyptian mummy paintings, Japanese woodblock prints, and grandiose portraits of Elizabeth I. Such a major fashion house drawing on these images for a campaign shows the continuing cultural influence these artworks hold. In this episode, we'll look at beauty trends across a few periods, starting with the Elizabethan era. The cult of Elizabeth I is simultaneously camp and exciting and very tragic in equal measure because I think when we look at the concept of beauty I think Elizabeth I as this national icon one of the longest reigning English monarchs one of the first reigning English monarchs that was a woman her use of cosmetics and her use of styling was almost her battle cry whereas men were able to weaponize themselves or go to war she wasn't able to do that what she did instead was she took the body politic and through cosmetics, and through fashion, and through augmentation of her body, she used her physicality as a weapon to maintain power. Elizabeth was aware of the precarious state of her throne and how she was perceived by the men around her. As England faced an oncoming invasion with the Spanish Armada, she delivered a speech acknowledging that she had the body of, quote, a weak, feeble woman, but the heart and stomach of a king. After the success of the English in battle, jewelry featuring Elizabeth and symbols of her strength and purity were worn with her encouragement. The famous Armada portrait was also commissioned, which is rich in symbolism and insight into the beauty trends of the period. It's just the most incredible spell-like piece of art because everything is so heavily coded and everything is so very deliberate. And then the detail on the dress is so rich and there's layers of perspective but then when we get to the face it's bleached out there is nearly nothing there to indicate her age bear in mind it was it was painted in the late 1580s but she was in her late 50s at that point and you can't pinpoint how old she is because through the styling and the cosmetics particularly with the lead and the mercury that she's got on her face she's literally wearing this mask and 
to say that the mercury and the lead was painting over the cracks on her face wasn't an exaggeration. It was a a full characterization that was painted over it. This smooth alabaster look that she created, this translucency where you could see the veins beneath her skin. To modern audiences, it's ghostly and it's quite grotesque when you consider that she's got poison on her face, but also the lengths that she's gone to in terms of maintaining this ageless appearance. It's quite alien and disturbing when you start to look at it, but it's also a very clever moment in art history because age signified weakness, illness was an opportunity to overthrow her, as was the case in 1601 when Essex tried to overthrow her. He referred to her her, her ugly and twisted carcass. The idea that a woman and her presentation could equal some kind of weakness politically meant that she created this gargoyle of herself in order to maintain power. And the legacy of that lasted for centuries in terms of women's styling and also men's presentation in terms of beauty. It's interesting to see how beauty trends trickled down from Elizabeth, who leveraged her appearance for power, to other noble women who sought to emulate her likeness. If you look at portraits of women from this period, such as one on the Art UK site of a courtier's daughter named Catherine Killigrew, you'll notice that she shares Elizabeth's alabaster complexion and high forehead. Even her dress has the same large sleeves, high collar, and shape of the Queen's dress in the Armada portrait. Elizabeth was known to have lost her hair and wore ever greater elaborate wigs as she got older. The women of the court did exactly the same thing. They were deliberately shaving their heads. They were reducing their hairline back further and further to match hers. In terms of the level of cosmetics they were applying, what's really fascinating about Elizabethan art, particularly in the portraiture, is that it's really difficult to differentiate the age of young women versus elderly women. And they were creating this fake visage in the style of Elizabeth. Elizabeth's political ambitions dictated how women looked and treated their bodies for a generation. Moving forward to the era of Charles II, we can look at the works of portraitist Peter Lely, a prominent 17th century court painter, also known for his fleshy paintings of beautiful women. They're astonishing works of sexualization of women, but they come at a time when It was the first period in British history where women were legally allowed to be on the stage and be actresses. So rather than men portraying women in drag almost and creating these extravagant personas so that everyone is fully aware that it's not a woman on the stage, it's a man. We have this vogue towards naturalism in women and the sexualisation of women. I think what's fascinating about considering the portraits of Lily is that 10 years ago in British history through that portraiture, we were in the middle of uh, Cromwell's Britain. Um, Puritanism, religious extremism, Christmas had been banned. Women showing any form of flesh or sexualisation was nearly non-existent. And then suddenly with the restoration of Charles II, Lely's work blooms into life in terms of these these highly sexualised images of women And specifically, we see them in in two very distinct forms, either the royal mistress, which was a sexual vehicle for power in itself, or how that crossed over into people like Nell Gwynne, for example, who started out as an actress on the stage and then became a royal mistress. I think what's fascinating about looking at 
uh, Lily's portraiture is that these women are painted ladies and they're referred to in art history as painted ladies because the cosmetics they're wearing was designed for the stage so that you could see them from far away. That overt sexualization, how extreme it was from natural beauty, suddenly became a vogue. And that vogue is really dangerous because for a number of Nell Gwynne's contemporaries, it was synonymous that to be an actress on the stage, simultaneously you could be a prostitute or referred to as an orange seller at the time. And that idea that cosmetics somehow equaled sexual license and then compound that with Lily's portraits of Charles II's mistresses who gains their power through sexual license. It becomes this kind of cult of sexuality that cosmetics and the enhancement of beauty is somehow linked to a moral degradation that after the after Cromwell's England. So were prostitutes known to wear makeup at this time as well? Absolutely. And I think okay. that's how they distinguished themselves from women that were married in the sense that these women didn't need to use cosmetics to a certain extent. Mm. What's equally fascinating about it is that for hundreds of years afterwards, that link in art history between cosmetics and sexual license was so prevalent to the point where when we get to the Victorian period, for example, Victoria is keen to eradicate the the Georgian era and all the sexual excess that was associated with it. So cosmetics were massively frowned upon. And even during the Edwardian period, for example, you still had to buy cosmetics as a woman under the counter. It was unboxed. You had to ask for it specifically. And there was a level of shame. Tracing the social significance of beauty trends is not restricted to the aesthetics of women. We can also look to how men have used cosmetics, wigs, and fashion to make their own political statements. That comes during the Georgian period, but almost certainly men were wearing cosmetics era. I think they were in the portraiture of Lily, for example, with them in elaborate wigs, um, blush on their faces. I think it's during the Georgian era that things really start to ramp up in terms of what we would consider gender ambiguity for men and how they use cosmetics. And again, cosmetics became a political weapon. The the Marconis, the, the fops, the dandies were using cosmetics to make a political statement in terms of who they were, their affiliation with the Whigs or the Liberals, and how they were defining themselves in terms of their economic status as well. I don't have to work, therefore my appearance become more elaborate creatures. Ironically, they were wearing more cosmetics than women at a time when women were considered men's property, legally and socially. When they would say, oh, I want to have a portrait done of myself, were they saying specifically, I want to include this, this makeup look that I have? Absolutely. And I think it was politics defined by the portraits of the time and how politics played out as an investment that you would make in art, recording not just who you were, but also the the assumption that for a number of these portraits, they would travel with their owners and they would move to different houses or different locations as the owners travelled around. So you were making a political statement through your style and you're making a political statement through carrying the art that represented what you looked like as well. I think in men, it became incredibly dangerous because notions of effeminacy at a time when it was illegal to be gay was a really exciting and thrilling moment in art. It was showing that 
men were toying and experimenting with concepts of masculinity and femininity. And it's interesting that they reached for cosmetics and the history of cosmetics in order to do so. In looking at the later trends of the Georgian period, including corsetry, makeup, and elaborate wigs, we can get a further understanding of how to decode the surface beauty of paintings. Pieces by Gainsborough, for example, are a really good example of this. Mrs. Siddons at the National Gallery is the most exquisite, beautiful portrait. And Mrs. Siddons started out as an actress on the stage. She married very well, became a society hostess. This real intelligentsia giant of the period, a number of male politicians sought out her opinions. When you look at her portrait in the National though, and that's one of the things I had last month, I had the, the privilege of just standing in front of it for half an hour and just daydreaming and just in looking at the reactions of other people as they assess Gainsborough's work, it started to become more and more disturbing because she's coding herself in two very different ways. She's coding herself as a woman of high status fashion, as you can see through the cosmetics, through the enormous hairstyle that she's created, through the impracticality of her clothes. But then at the same time, women were looking for a vehicle for self-empowerment and cosmetics and fashion trapped women or elevated women to a certain extent and I see Mrs Siddons as a, as, as a two-way street. On the one hand she looks incredibly beautiful, aristocratic, in charge of the world. There is such an air of intelligence when you look at her portrait but then that's counteracted by the fact that she's got lead and mercury on her face, that she's very heavily corseted to a point where her internal organs would have been displaced and that she has the most ginormous hairstyle which was based in part in Georgian art on a reaction to syphilis and how endemic syphilis was in the 18th century that people were backcombing their hair whitening it making it look as thick as possible because one of the side effects of syphilis is open sores on the scalp and your hair falling out so mm. this incredibly intelligent beautiful woman is at odds with the styling of what a woman is expected to be. John has touched on the darker side of cosmetics and fashion, which is arguably still present in varying forms today. How do the beauty choices we make impact our health? And conversely, how do some of the fashion choices we make mask what may be going on with our bodies? It's become a staple of British art looking at portraits of the 18th century. And we were desensitized to them because aristocratic and elite equals beautiful in art and there's very few depictions of the working classes that are accurate so we look at these portraits of these women and we think and these men and we think oh that's you know that's that's beautiful for that time a bit exaggerated when you take away the stability of it these are really grotesque images of people damaging their health side effects to lead and mercury poisoning for example lethargy coupled with aggression passing out severe stomach cramps, losing your teeth, losing your hair, blindness, deafness, a mental impairment. The idea of these fainting women wasn't just a vogue. It was the idea that they were heavily poisoned. It's well, really... when you combine that with the syphilis and then the corsets, they're just yeah, in a total state. <laughs> <laughs> and the irony that they were applying more and more extreme yeah. techniques to try and make them look healthy in response to cosmetics that were making them ill in the first place. Mm. I think people just presume that these pictures are so beautiful, therefore they're safe. 
the idea that elaborate lice combs were developed for these Georgian women because a hairstyle was an investment. You would keep it for about a month or two months because it was so expensive to do. It was set with pig fat and wax. So imagine a boiling hot hairstyle that you can't change and then the inevitable lice that was going to get into it. Women were routinely carrying lice combs around with them as a fashion accessory. Following the powdered wigs and faces of the Georgians, the beauty trends of the Victorian era were markedly different. While it was still desirable for women to have clear, healthy-looking skin that cosmetics could offer, it also became the fashion to look natural and use natural products. Women were starting to be pictured in natural-looking cosmetics, that cosmetics were starting to disappear. So it's almost a downturn in terms of how people are portrayed. This, the homogenization of men, for example. We've gone from Georgian men, which could be glamorous and beautiful, heavily cosmetics, huge wigs, elaborate waistcoats. And then suddenly we start to work towards the Victorian aspect of a man, which is a standard suit and breeches and cravat. It really changes what we perceive people to be and also what's respectable. The work of the Pro-Raphaelites is a great example of this aesthetic shift. The women visible in the imagery of this movement eschewed tightly cinched clothing in favor of loose-fitting dresses and more plain fabrics. In portraits of the model and embroiderer Jane Morris, we observe that her wavy hair is loosely swept back and her face is devoid of makeup. We previously discussed the group's emphasis on naturalism in our episode on the Pro-Raphaelites' relationship with science, and this idea carried through to their personal aesthetics. They even went so far as to say the way they dressed was healthier, and artists including George Frederick Watts and Louise Jopling joined a group called the Healthy and Artistic Dress Union. Moving into modern and contemporary art, the relationship between art and beauty trends played out in other ways. Portraiture can hold up a mirror to the trends of a given era, but artists also engaged directly with beauty trends as tools for expression. Salvador Dali designed a range of makeup compacts, for example, and Cindy Sherman used wigs and cosmetics to become dramatic and varied characters in her self-portrait photography. Sherman's work, dating back to the mid-1970s, was recently on view in a retrospective at the National Portrait Gallery in London. The spell-like nature of Sherman's work in terms of the photography and the excellence of it is coupled with how grotesque at times the images can be or exciting or thrilling and how Sherman herself adapts herself through cosmetics, through prosthetics, through visuals, through clothing, through her styling to create these different characters that's so seamless that a number of times while I was in the exhibition some of the visitors were saying oh who's that in the picture and I kept thinking oh it's Sherman but I don't want to spoil the illusion <laughs> so I was kind of like surprise oh. they're all Cindy Sherman <laughs> yeah. I love that the subtle differences in how we present ourselves can really change the characterization. And it can, again, Sherman really embraces the notion of how dangerous our styling and cosmetics can make us. The clown series and the entertainer series that she's had, for example, is a, such a good example of that. She's taken clowns and the idea of clowns and she's mixed this sinister edge with a notion of sexualization with sadness simultaneously. They're really disorientating and uncomfortable images. And what I loved about the clown series was that some people literally hurried past them. They couldn't get away from them mm. fast enough. For me, it was a honeypot because the more uncomfortable I got with the image, the more I wanted to stay with it and follow that feeling. Sherman takes the tropes of history and art history and portraiture and the styling of people in the past 
but she really explores that through the perspective of fashion. One of the central aims of this series is to dive into the ways that art reflects the world around us. We talked about the trends of several periods in this episode, but John says it's important not to lose the individuals in these works. Looking at the cosmetics and the styling of people in portraiture is a really good vehicle for empathy. We look at these people in their glittering jewels, their amazing gowns, their beautiful clothes, their styling, and it's a, it's a novelty. They're these kind of strange imported aliens into our lives that live in historical dramas, that it's, it's entertainment. But when you start to kind of break that down and you consider the individual that was wearing that level of cosmetics, how ill potentially that individual was, the extreme nature of those cosmetics, and particularly from a feminist perspective, that women denied so much social voice, found it in the use of their bodies and cosmetics. It's really quite poignant to find the individual behind the mask. If you found this topic interesting, you may also enjoy our episode focusing on hairstyles and paintings. Definitely be sure to head over to Art UK to see related images in the written version of this episode and follow us on social media where we're always sharing something interesting to sink your teeth into. We're on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. As always, thank you for listening. Be sure to rate and subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts and join us again next time.